Hey guys, it's Christmas. Welcome to Stubbornly Optimistic at Christmas time. A little bit of a present for you from yours truly, Sarah Ellis, on the podcast all about people and what makes them tick. Today's episode is my top 12 influencers. The people that I, over a period of time, have put together in a list and... I've also dropped in some little nuggets of wisdom as my Christmas present to you guys from each individual person. I'll do a little bit of talking and a little bit of an intro on each one. So here's my 12 people of Christmas. teachers be a teacher please 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 be a teacher teachers are the most admirable and important people in the world you don't have to do it forever but if you're in doubt about what to do be an amazing teacher one of my teachers at school and this particular gentleman was the first person that I can recall who had his own business aside from being employed now my parents were very much the usual case of affairs where dad went to work, he had a job that he worked hard at, he was employed, brought home a paycheck, provided for his family and mum went out and had her jobs as well and, and assisted with that. So this guy, a guy called Mr Poulter, was my maths teacher from GCSE all the way through A-levels and he owned a business where he sold train sets. Now I'm led to believe, if memory serves me, these train sets were large items that kind of go in the garden and stuff. Um, but he was the first guy that, that, you know, introduced me to the idea, the concept of having your own business as well as, or instead of, being employed. And something that he used to say quite frequently has stayed with me to this day, which is, Life happens while you plan other things. The second influence on me that I would say has been huge in terms of changing my actions has been 
a guy from Wayne State's university called Dr. John Coravino. Dr. Coravino is known as the gay moralist. He's written a number of books. He's a proponent for same-sex marriage. Um, he has written a book called What's Wrong with Homosexuality, um, which is a very personal take on the academic arguments against those who would detract from homosexuality being a valid way to live one's life. Now, why do I say that Dr. Coravino was a massive influence? Because he was the first person who I came across who very eruditely managed to capture a way of dealing with detractors. His philosophical take and very dignified response to some undignified accusations in terms of the arguments was something that I've, I've explained this recently as my I want to do that moment a lot of people will see people on stage they'll see performers actors you know policemen firemen whatever it may be and they'll have this little thing in the back of their head going that's cool, I want to do that. And that is where I was at when I first came across the work of Dr. Caravino. So he has been a massive, massive influence on me. And have a listen to this little clip of Dr. Caravino explaining a couple of things. Consider the fact that right now there are thousands of people across the world having sex. It's kind of disconcerting when you think about it. Especially when you realize you're sitting here listening to me. <laughs> but when I tell you that some of these people are with partners of the same sex, and some of these people are with partners of the other sex, that fact seems to take on a significance all its own. And the question I want to explore tonight is, why? What's morally wrong with homosexuality, if anything? And if nothing, what's all the fuss about? And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to look at some of the most common arguments against homosexuality, and subject them to philosophical scrutiny, which sounds fancier than it is. Really, we're just going to look at these arguments, see what they are, see if they work. In the years I've been doing this, a number of people have made the comment, at least in the early years, I started doing this in, in Texas in the early 90s, and people said to me, you know, your approach seems so negative. You're always talking about the arguments against homosexuality. Why don't you ever give an argument in favor of homosexuality? And I said, you know, it's a good idea. So I want to start with a kind of preliminary argument in favor of homosexuality. Preliminary argument. There's a lot more to be said. But in a way, the preliminary argument is quite simple. Homosexual relationships make some people happy. This is the kind of thing that we celebrate when we talk about heterosexuality. We celebrate it everywhere from great literature to romance novels to trashy shows on MTV. You know these shows? You can feel your brain cells dying as you watch some of these shows. You know the ones. But they have this point in common about finding a special someone, connecting with that person, expressing your feelings for that person in a way for which mere words would be inadequate. This is a wonderful, beautiful part of the human experience. If we're going to deny this to a whole group of people saying, you can't have that, that's wrong, we'd better have a darn good reason. My third influence would be 
a number of philosophers. Um, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. And in the third one, I'm going to just say that my third influence has been philosophy, which allows me to bring in Plato, Socrates, Epictetus, Epicurus, all these people. Um, John Stuart Mill, Nietzsche, you've got a whole bunch of people. So that's, that's philosophy, that's my next one. And, and getting into that, actually sort of um, opening the wedge up, uh, was a guy called Nigel Warburton who wrote a fantastic book called The Basics of Philosophy, where he goes into different arguments, different things with regards to philosophical arguments, how you, how you do this whole process of thinking about thinking and thinking about arguments and looking at an argument. And it just sort of took off from there. Okay, so this is billed as a talk for freshers. So some of the things I'm going to say are going to be directed at people who are just beginning studying philosophy at university. But I think in order to read philosophy at all, you have to study it. So anybody who picks up a philosophy book is, in a sense, a student of philosophy. So this is much broader than just directed at freshers. But I'll get the easy bit out of the way first. So the easy bit is philosophy is a fantastic sub subject to study because of the side effects in verbal reasoning and in analytic reasoning particularly. So there are all kinds of spin-offs of studying philosophy. For me, the great value of philosophy is that it transforms the people who study it, inevitably. Philosophy isn't a spectator sport. It's, it's different from some other subjects because when you study it, you actually have to do it in the way that if you kick a, a football around on a field, you're actually playing football. You may not be as good as Pelé or Ronaldo or whoever it is, but you're still doing, you're still playing football. Fourthly, when you start to apply this thought process, you start to go, well, okay, all right, fine. You know, you've got these arguments, you've got how to think about stuff, but what does that mean in a real sense? And then I came across a guy called Tim Ferriss. Many, many, many people will have heard of this guy, the four-hour work week, the four-hour body, tribe of mentors, and his new book, The Tools of Titans. All of those titles are on my shelf, and just the stuff that, that Tim explains and how he explains it, and also linking back to number three, philosophy, philosophers, the fact that I discovered a bunch of other philosophers, Stoics, from listening to Tim, so things came full circle somewhat, realizing that the stuff that he was actually saying harks back to the older stuff, of Socrates and uh, Seneca the Younger, which is now something else that I look at. Letter 13 On Groundless Fears I know that you have plenty of spirit, for even before you began to equip yourself with maxims which were wholesome and potent to overcome obstacles, you were taking pride in your contest with fortune. And this is all the more true now that you have grappled with fortune and tested your powers. For our powers can never inspire in us implicit faith in ourselves, except when many difficulties have confronted us on this side and on that, and have occasionally even come to close quarters with us. It is only in this way 
that the true spirit can be tested, the spirit that will never consent to come under the jurisdiction of things external to ourselves. This is the touchstone of such a spirit. No prize-fighter can go with high spirits into the strife if he has never been beaten black and blue. The only contestant who can confidently enter the lists is the man who has seen his own blood, who has felt his teeth rattle beneath his opponent's fist, who has been tripped and felt the full force of his adversary's charge, who has been downed in body, but not in spirit, one who, as often as he falls, rises again with greater defiance than ever. In choosing a person, a personality, a friend, or an acquaintance who you want to learn from, obviously the first question you have to answer is, what do you want to learn? And quite often you'll find, because humans are flawed individuals, you'll find that learning from one person, or the works of one person, will teach you specifics but you may well disagree with that person in other areas of their life. So the first thing to do is really drill down into what it is you want to explore, learn, create. Of course that requires a bit of self-reflection because we can't really figure out what we want to do, where we want to go, what we want to learn without knowing where we're starting from. And there is the difficult bit, I think the bit that many people fall over with um, when it comes to their own professional development. Because we humans are wonderful at self-delusion. We either think we're worse than we are or better than we are. Often we are our own harshest critic, undeservedly so. And in some cases we think we hold on to images of ourselves that are perhaps a little bit more rosy than the truth so it's interesting to start off with that goal to find out exactly where you are so the first mentor that I would look at myself if anyone's looking at trying to find a business mentor person that uh, you can learn from is as a, as a friend of mine recently said um, who's a marketing specialist um, find someone who is better than you in your chosen profession, who is just a little bit further ahead, not massively so, but is a little bit further ahead and has been through the process that you are currently doing um, and living through. And who can be, if you like, that mirror, that foil, that sort of sounding board for whether or not your view of where you are, where you're starting from, is actually true, correct, and whether you're focusing on the right things. So that would be my go-to reason for finding a mentor and an influencer and what to look for in an influencer and mentor. Tim Ferriss has um, some interesting thoughts on this particular point, so have a listen to this little clip from Tim doing an interview. What advice would you give to a 30-year-old just getting started in your industry? What is the best advice you would give? And just as important, I think you should ask, what advice should that person ignore? Or what is the worst advice that you hear repeated often 
in your industry? What is the conventional wisdom that you disagree with? Those type of questions give you a not to do list and uh, it is what you don't do that provides the space for what you can do. Anyone who says, you should do this the way I did it, without any caveats, should be maybe ignored in many cases, but certainly viewed with suspicion. The, the type of mentors who tend to be the most helpful are those who don't necessarily give you an answer, but they give you a better way of finding that answer. Fifth on the list is Stephen Hawking. Now, mentioning that name will come as no surprise to people that have either read some of my scribbles or listened to some of these podcasts. But the reason for Stephen Hawking being in this list is twofold. Obviously, the guy was a phenomenal mind, a phenomenal genius, but there are two things that really stood out to me during my lifetime and his story. Stephen Hawking was the sort of guy who just kept going. The emotional quotient stuff, the EQ stuff, the character that this guy had was, in my eyes, incredibly inspiring. So that's one of the reasons that he's at the very top of the list. The second reason he makes this list is that in his works, as anyone who has seen the story of his life portrayed by Eddie Redmayne will know, in his academic works, his doctorate was proving the existence of supermassive black holes, and then his postdoctoral work set about disproving that and I think that's beautiful in the sense that a lot of academics and clever people can hold on to their visions and theories and uh, ideas concepts the very things that created them as academics and we have an example coming up of just such a case shortly but the, the ability to learn and to expound one's ideas and then deconstruct them was something that Stephen Hawking had in spades. So not only was he a genius and a guy who had some almost superhuman levels of tenacity and character, but a very wise guy, in my opinion, to boot. Became clear something was not quite right with me. I fell over and had great difficulty getting up again. My mother realized something was wrong and took me to the doctor. I spent weeks in Bart's hospital and had many tests. They never actually told me what was wrong, but I guessed enough to know it was pretty bad. In fact, the doctor who diagnosed me washed his hands of me and I never saw him again. He felt that there was nothing that could be done. At first I became depressed. I seemed to be getting worse pretty rapidly. There didn't seem any point working on my PhD because I didn't know if I would live long enough to finish it. I had come to Cambridge to do cosmology, and cosmology I was determined to do. Then the condition developed more slowly, and I began to make progress in my work. After my expectations had been reduced to zero, Every new day became a bonus, and I began to appreciate everything I did have. While there's life, there is hope. Influencers are not necessarily those people that you completely agree with. 
and one such example for me would be the feminist author and academic and professor Jermaine Greer at the very start of my own journey and organization of thoughts with regards to transgender as a phenomenon within the human population um, the early works of Jermaine Greer, second wave feminism, all of that sort of stuff, some of which is very trans exclusionary, was extremely important in creating a lot of my thinking. So influences from a, a left field kind of direction don't necessarily have to be people that have agreed with you or you have then agreed with. They are people that, in my view, have influenced you to action, either a disagreement or a rebuttal or a refuting of, of an argument. Jermaine Greer and a few other individuals are up there in this list, definitely. Because arguably, without the contribution of these individuals in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even today, we wouldn't be where we are in terms of LGBT rights. They may disagree with us, but they paved the way for us. How do you define feminism, and do you believe the name of this movement matters, and if so, why? I choose not to define feminism, because to define something is to limit it. And you define in terms of the present, where we are now, so you can't very easily see um, how the definition will change as time changes and uh, priorities change. You know, the world has changed enormously since I wrote The Female Eunuch. And it now doesn't, the problems that face young women today are really different and in some ways terrible and not predicted, certainly not by me. What was the next bit? Oh, does it matter what a movement is called? Mm, I think it does a bit. I've always been a liberation feminist, so for me, it's women's liberation is the idea. And that means that I can't tell you what's around the corner. For the next one, let's take a trip away from the academic stuff and all the intellectual stuff um, and go towards the arts, music. Most of the names that come to mind are guitarists. And the one that sits on top of that currently, there's two, Keith Urban and the lead singer of Alterbridge, Miles Kennedy. Miles Kennedy is a guitar teacher and also a collaborator with Slash and a few other people. Um, phenomenal guitar player. And Keith Urban, again, childhood prodigy and virtuoso on the instrument. To get to that level of competence in a chosen field requires the, level, the tenacity and everything else that, that really intrigues me on a personal level. Skill and talent will get you so far. The rest of it is application, hard work, etc. The guitarist is also well known for being a drummer, Dave Grohl of Nirvana, Foo Fighters, Queen of the Stone Age, to name but a few. Have a listen to a couple of nuggets of wisdom from these two guys. I directed like music videos before for the Foo Fighters. And, and it's, I mean, it's easy. I honestly, I honestly believe that if you're, if you're focused and passionate and driven, um, you can achieve anything you want to achieve in life. Because I honestly believe that. Because you'll 
figure it out, you know what I mean? So I never took lessons to play the drums. I just figured it out. And I never took lessons to play guitar. I took maybe a few, but I just listened to Beatles records, you know? And so, but I would listen to it. I would listen and, and practice by myself in my bedroom obsessively. And so throughout life, I've always kind of figured that that's just how you do stuff. Um, you know, so, so we've spent a good deal of time today talking about collaboration. You know, your, your work with producers, your band members. What is, it, what is it about you that makes you a good collaborator? You'd have to ask them. <laughs> no. Um, first of all, the want to collaborate. Yes. And, and um, I'm, what, I'm, what I want to find, if we do something, I know what I do, I know what you do, but I don't know what we do. Mm. So I'm interested in that third thing. And, and, and I imagine it also has to be about you know, being open. You have to, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and especially, you know, someone, someone at your level, two decades or more of remarkable success. I mean, I went through the numbers in the open, you know, 23 number one singles. That doesn't, that doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen in a year. It mm. happens mm. over a period of time. Mm. So, so keeping that level, you, you have to, I imagine, remain open to the possibilities. You can't get locked into no, one No, and thing. also I... I, I uh, that I've heard it said one time, humility, the definition of humility is remaining teachable. And I think that's a good definition mm. for that. And I've just, I'm just curious. I'm curious and I'm hungry and I'm passionate about creating. So where are we at? We are at number nine. We've just heard number nine, Keith Urban, of my top 12. That leaves three left, which you're going to have to wait for until Christmas Day. I couldn't leave you with nothing to uh, to look forward to on the 25th, so I'm going to leave the top three for a couple of days, and maybe after you've had your turkey, listen to the Queen's speech, whatever you do with your family on Christmas Day, you might find your way to my little extra bit for you guys as a little bit of a Christmas present, and thank you for listening to my inane ramblings for the latter part of 2018. Hope you enjoyed this podcast, guys, and um, as ever, if you change the way you look at things, you know what's going to happen. They will eventually change. Have a great Christmas. Bye for now. from now when you're looking back at your life don't you want to be able to say you had the guts to get in the car